You might have to bear with me this morning. Anyone who knows me knows I can talk for Africa. Africa and England. But today is not one of those days I would have chosen to use my words. Today is one of those days I would have chosen to sit there and just stand in awe of my God and just weep, just in gratitude for all that he's done. And so having lived 40 years with the bad news and seven with the good I am so overwhelmed today for what he's done for me that using my words is not what I wanted to do today. And so I probably will lose them somewhere along the way. (laughs) Bear with me. If you just be patient with me. I I, I will compose myself. I'll gather myself. And I'll, I'll get on with it. We hope. But I have got words. So today it's Easter Sunday, isn't it? It happens every year around this time. And whether you're Christian or not Christian, it's a fixed part of our calendar. But the danger of something being such an integrated part of the fabric of our everyday lives, being such a part of our taken-for-granted world, is that we forget. We forget with the passage of time Why was this day significant? With the passage of time, we just lose the details. We lose the who, the what, and the why these days were set apart to begin with. It's a celebration today. Amen. Amen. But what will you celebrate? If you ask my 21-year-old child who isn't a Christian yet, she's just celebrating a four-day weekend. That's it. And if you were to look at the world, you would be forgiven for thinking that today we celebrate chocolate and bunnies and bonnets. And for myself, I celebrate knowing the truth. Having lived without it for 40 years, I celebrate knowing it. I celebrate knowing Jesus. And so I've pondered, I've pondered, how could I show you what that feels like knowing Jesus? Because it's more than words, it's more than there, it's there, and, and it's, it comes with an emotional response as well. And how, how could I do that for you? How could I show you how it feels to know this mind-blowing truth? And the enormity and the significance of it and the repercussions of it, not just for me, not for Jesus' followers, but for everyone in the world. And so when my words fail, maybe I can show you. Could you see that? I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, it wants explaining. Don't get nervous, Chris, just yet. See, I know the truth that there absolutely nothing is as it seems. Nothing is as it seems. And it's a truth that only Jesus' followers know. And knowing the truth is it's bittersweet. It's sweet for me. It's sweet for me because I get to be defiant in the face of danger. I get to be defiant in the face of trouble because I know my God's got me. I know I'm not alone. I'm not defenseless. I am not helpless. I have power and I have authority because my God gave it to me. 
I know that whatever it looks like to me or to the rest of the world, I've already won this battle I'm facing. Whether it's with my child, it's with my job, it's in my home, because my God won already. I am victorious. And so that allows me to stay in the saddle of life confidently. When I'm bobbing and I'm weaving and the life is hitting me so hard that I haven't got time to duck, I know in my hand I have the antidote. But it's bitter. It's bitter. Because I, there's just so many people who just obliviously wait on the platforms of life. Just oblivious. And the school train comes and you jump on and you jump off. And the university train comes and you jump on, you jump off. Maybe you think, I'll take the work train. Maybe the love train stops in your stop. Maybe you jump on. Maybe you think, I don't know where, this is not where I want to go. I jump off. Maybe you jump on the next love train. But we wait, mindlessly, just waiting for trains. And do you know, it is, it's a truth that makes me so aware of the danger that people who don't know Jesus are in. It, it presses in on me. And it drives me to my knees and I say, Lord, forgive him because he's just stupid. He's just blind and he's lost and he doesn't know. Would you look the other way? Would you be merciful, God? Would you be kind? I just understand those men who walk around with the placards saying, repent, the end is near. I understand it, but I don't say it because I'm already the crazy Christian lady. Just don't say it. Instead, I walk around politely and I say, there's a buggy in the electrical system, people. <laughs> and really, I want to say, don't you know where you're going? Don't you, you don't even know what is happening. And then it's a truth that makes me so frustrated. So frustrated as those people who know I'm the Christian lady. And I say, you have to put the brake on this lifestyle. You have to put the brake on it because you don't know where this is going. They're so adamant that they're the captains of their own train that they just can't acknowledge the truth. And to be honest, it's a frustration. But I say, I know the truth. I know the truth about God. I know the truth about his plan for us. I know the truth about sin and the impact it had on me and you. But then I know the truth about Jesus. And you know, if you're in the room today, God wants you to know that truth as well. So where to begin with this truth? Well, like everything, it must begin with God. So before I was a Christian, I must concede, even before I knew Jesus, I I was happy to concede that there was a God. But he was a single old man God. He was a a grumpy, bad-tempered, set in his ways, like only old single men can be, painting with broad strokes. (laughs) Um, He was powerful for sure, but he was distant, he was cold, he was cruel. He was a rule-making, whip-cracking, tyrannical, megalomaniac God. He was watching me, he was waiting for me to step out of line, so he could beat me back into submission. And on the other hand, though, he was this needy God. He needed this 24-7 praise, adoration, worship. What was that about? But, of course, I was just making it up. I was making it up. This God that I made up had no foundation in the truth. He just existed in my head. But the handy thing about God is that we don't have to make him up. He left everything he wanted us to know in writing. He left us. He left us with the Bible. 
So we don't have to make it up. And so it was helpful for me to go back to the beginning, to God's beginning in Genesis, to be able to truly understand who this God was. And while I have no intention of reading today those first three chapters of Genesis to you, maybe later in your life, some point you go back to it and life will make sense. But in Genesis, we see a God, yes, he's powerful. He's so powerful, he doesn't, he doesn't need to explain his presence. He doesn't explain his process. He just says, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, more than one. <laughs> and he's so powerful, he just speaks things into existence. He says, let there be light and there's light. As a working mother, I wish I had this capacity. <laughs> and he just speaks things into being, but not when it came to us. When it came to us, when it came to making the first person, Adam, he didn't speak him, he formed him. He formed him out of dust. Can you imagine how hard that was? Dust is all over the place. Can you imagine forming a body out of dust? Probably explains why we're still all over the place today, because we're dust. And um, God himself breathed life. He breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. He made himself, Adam, a living creature. Didn't really fit with my profile of this distant God, this cold, cruel God, but it did fit the picture of a hands-on, I'm getting stuck in, I'm involved, because I love you and I made you. And then God made Adam in his own image. He made him like him. And he made a home for him. He planted a garden. He made the Garden of Eden. He didn't speak it. He planted it. Now, I'm not a gardener. I'm not. In fact, you should never give me a piece of land. I, I should live in a flat. I'm going to kill anything. And, but, but with age, I've been drawn to gardening. My children say they know how I'm old now because I want to garden. But you know, it's not sticking because it's hard work. And um, God planted this garden. But as I saw this God, it reminded me of myself as I waited for my babies, as I dreamed about what would they look like? Would they have my dimples and curly hair? Would they have their father's dark skin? Would they have my father's big personality or their father's shyness? And I carefully and lovingly made a nursery for them, predicting what they would be like with every intention of cherishing them. And so maybe God's not that tyrannical God. Maybe God's a father. Maybe God's a father who loves us so much and he wants to give us everything And he wants to take care of us. And God, he gave Adam everything that he made. It's remarkable, really. God brought everything that he had made to Adam. And he said, yeah, it's yours. You name it. You care for it. You work it. You be fruitful. You be blessed. What kind of a God does that? Not that needy, greedy, megalomaniac God of my mind but a God who loves us. And you know, for no rhyme or reason, he could have picked any of his creation to be the object of his affection. It could have been the giraffes. I would have picked the the angels personally, but he didn't. He picked us. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. We were entitled to nothing. The only thing we had going for us was that he loved us. He loved us so much that he was willing to give us everything. And so this God, this God who made me from love, this God who had an absolute claim to me, him I was ready to love with no whipping required. 
And so there's a choice to be made. Will you continue to believe this version of God you hold in your head? Will you continue to believe this version of God that perhaps the world presents to you? Or will you believe the God of the Bible? And what would life look like if you did believe the God of the Bible? What would life look like if instead of the version of God you hold in your head, you see a father, a father who loves you, who's holding his hand out to you, who wants to love you and wants to give you everything that he has? If you want to meet him, I want to introduce you. So where did it go wrong? Where did it go wrong, you ask yourself? Because from our vantage point in history, it can be really difficult to see a God who loves us because if he's so powerful and he loves us, why is there stress and strife and suffering in this world? What went wrong? You know, why, why do we need handkerchiefs for our tears and hospitals for our sick and nurses for our dead? Where is he? Why hasn't he stepped in to save the day as he did? Is he too weak and tired? Is he deaf? Is he blind? Or has he just washed? Has he just washed his hands of us? And the answer to that is the truth is we messed it up. Adam did. And before you say it's unfair, we understand that. Children understand that one person's choices affect the group. I only have to hear my nine year old son lament that they lost golden time one more Friday because Sonny wouldn't behave <laughs> to know that we understand that. Adults, we understand it because whatever Theresa May decides about Brexit, we are going to take the consequences of. And parents, we understand that because there's one child who ruins the day out. There's that one child that you say, enough. Packing it in, we're going home. And when we go back to the beginning, God gave Adam everything. Everything. There was one condition, one. He said, don't eat the tree from the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God makes it clear. He says, if you eat from the tree, you will die. And um, so I remember really clearly the first time that it came onto my radar that death wasn't a natural part of life. And um, to be honest, it, it was a shock to my sensibility. It was a little bit strong for my constitution early on a Sunday morning, to be honest. And there was this preacher, and he was sheepish. He was apologetic even, as he was explaining that God never intended us to die. And I thought, you're not selling it, mate. Because I don't believe you believe it. <laughs> and I thought, I looked around, no one was offended, no one was outraged, right? There was no drama about it. So I thought, ah, oh, he must have been some random going off piste, so we'll forget about that one. But then months later, a missionary from Papua New Guinea came, and um, he was talking about eternal life, and he really meant it. And I thought, oh my goodness, have I stumbled onto some mad sect of Christianity? Have I found one mad church... Because who thinks we're going to live forever is this Highlander. But of course, the thing about it is, as Jesus is believers, we really do believe that. You see, God, he had a plan. And his plan was that he was going to be our God. We were going to be his people. We were going to live together with him in his place forever. Adam messed it up. Adam made the fruit. And we take the consequences of that. See, after Adam disobeyed, it broke the relationship with God. They hid from God. They were scared of God. We're still hiding and we're still scared today. 
And once they ate the fruit, that was it. We were banished from Eden. We had no more access to the tree of life. And so we die. And we didn't just lose our relationship with God. We lost our home. We lost our eternal life. We lost the blessing that that came with. Suddenly, Adam and Eve, they felt shame. They felt fear. They started to bicker with each other, started to blame each other, started to blame God. Childbirth became painful. Relationships between men and women was painful. The ground was cursed. Work was painful, and then we died. And all those things that we think are natural, all those things we think are normal, pain and tears and strife and anger and toil and frustration and grief and death, all those things that we think are normal, they're not. It is not what God intended for us. It's a consequence of Adam's actions. See, Adam sinned. And sin is a very misunderstood word. It's a word I didn't understand because I took sin to mean doing bad things. But the waters were muddy. Where did I draw the line? So killing someone, was that a bad thing? Was that a sin? Depended on the circumstances, really, didn't it? If I killed you for your shoes, maybe that was a bad thing. But if I killed you in the process of defending myself or my children, was that a bad thing? Where, where did I draw the line? How on earth was I meant to understand sin? And it took an older Christian lady to go through Genesis with me and to explain to me that sin is actually saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules, to show me that from that moment that Adam turned from God, in that moment when he ate the fruit, his action said, I know you told me not to eat the fruit, but I'm going to. And what you going to do? I'm going to eat this fruit because I want to eat the fruit. I don't want you to tell me what's right and what's wrong, because I'm going to know, I know what's right and wrong for me. And you know what? We've been saying that to God and each other, either by our word or our deed, ever since. Adamson ruined everything. Not just for him, but for all of us who were born after him. Because of Adamson, we are born sinners. We are born sinners. We have lost our natural state of grace. We have lost our blessing, our fruitfulness, our immortality. We've lost the privilege of living in our home. We've lost the relationship with our father. We are born, banished, alone, afraid, ashamed, fatherless, and sentenced to death. And it's grim, but we don't know that it's grim. But let me tell you, it's not, because nothing is as it seems. And if your first thought is, that's heavy, it is It is heavy. And if you admit it, though, deep down, you know that it's true. You do. Because every parent here knows that that one thing you tell your child to do, it's the only thing that they're going to do. Because we understand rebellion. Every fairy tale ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Because we understand eternity. Every mother says, wait until your father comes home. Because we understand the authority of a father. We cry when our dead, when our loved ones die. We hate innocent suffering. We hate our children being bullied. We hate our spouses betraying us because we yearn. We yearn for that sense of love and security and belonging that was once ours because God wrote it on our hearts. It's there. And so there's a choice to be made. 
Are you only going to believe what you see in front of you? Are you going to believe that this painful existence, it's the norm and I must suck it up until I die? Or will you begin to listen to those, those stirrings of your heart, those stirrings that say, this, this is not right. This is, this is not how life is meant to be. This is not how I am meant to be. And so what will your life look like if you own that truth? What would life be like if you realize that there is so much more to play for than this painful existence? And so if you are ready to listen to the stirrings of your heart, then there's Jesus. And he is the good news. He's that big reset button. He just, by his life and his death, he just rebooted the system. And it gives all of us, every single one of us, the chance to come back to God's factory settings. See, when Adam broke everything, the penalty was death. Adam was ashamed, he was afraid, he realized he was naked. He didn't know how to fix his problem. He didn't know what to do, but God did. And God always has. God has always had a plan for us to overcome that, and his name is Jesus. See, God made that first sacrifice. God sacrificed an animal. He took the skin. He covered Adam. He covered Eve. God covered them. And that's who Jesus is. It's a picture for us of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's sacrifice for us. He's the Lamb of God who died to take away our sin, to cover us so that we could get back everything that we lost. Do you know, I can't quite get over the fact that that Jesus took on that role, that he became for me the, la- the lamb who was slain. You know, I, I really can't get my, my head around it, that Jesus, knowing all that he had to go through, knowing that it was him, and he turned up. How'd you get over that one? My God turned up for me. He left behind his majesty. He left behind his glory. He left behind his power in heaven. And he became dust like me to save me. To think that my God thought, there's this child who's going to be born in 1972. If I don't go there and save the day, she is never going to know her father. She is never going to know her father's love. She is never going to have a relationship with him. She is never going to know who she is, that she is the child of a king. She is never going to know that she is an heir. She is never going to know how to navigate life without me. She is never going to be able to find her way home without me. She is never going to be found if I don't go, if I don't turn up and save the day. How do you get over that one, that my God came to die for me? And not just to die, to die the death that he did. To die that death where not only has he taken on dust, but he's rejected and he's mocked and he's beaten and he's nailed to a cross. And he did it knowing that I could never know him or myself if he didn't do that. 
And it's overwhelming that Jesus was for me the lamb, the lamb who was slain. But he also came to be the light, which is just as overwhelming. You see, he knew that I would have no idea how to live, and and none of us knows how to live in a relationship with our Father in this broken world. How do we do that in the brokenness? And so he had to come to give us a demonstration. He had to come to model it for us. He had to come to show us that, yes, I'm going to leave my power in heaven, but I still have what you have. I have God's word, and I have prayer, and I'm leaving with you the Holy Spirit. And that is going to give you access to the Father's power, to the Father's peace. It's going to allow you to enjoy the presence of the Father until I come again. How do you get over that? That my God left everything to die for me, but to live for me. To show me that I am not an orphan. To show you that you are not an orphan. And so you see, today I can celebrate. Can you? Today I have the absolute assurance that Jesus is coming for me. I do. Because he still lives. Because the tomb is empty. And my God is not dead. He is not dead. He is there. And you know where he is? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father where he told me he would be. He is intervening for me. And that means that every promise that he has ever made is going to come true. He's going to keep every promise that he made. He is also, if I find my page, it means that I am going to be resurrected too. It means that that plan that he had is still on track. It means that plan that he had for him to be our God, for us to be his people, to live with him forever, it's on track. It's going to happen because my God's alive and nothing is deterring him from his plan and we will be his people and it's going to be perfect because we will have our new bodies and we will have the new earth and we will live with him forever where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more strife. And as my son says to me, I will fall over and never scrape my knee again. (laughs) It's going to be perfect. He came for me once. He turned up once. And he's going to turn up again. And so I can celebrate. Can you? He's coming for me. But is he coming for you? He wants to. (coughs) He wants to come for you. He died for you too. He lived for you. He rose for you. And he lives for you. But it's a choice. It's a choice that you will have to make, like Adam had to make. What will you do with knowing that truth? 